everyone. Welcome back once again to Run Out Radio. I'm Jerry Forsyth alongside Mike Howerton. And we are, of course, brought to you by Lucasi Hybrid Cues, Simonis Billiard Cloth, and the Tap League. Mike, the boycott's over. Thank God. <laughs> yeah, now we can go out and play pool, right? Yeah, that was a mess. It was a mess. And I hope that we can do without those in the future. You know, it's okay to have uh, business disagreements, and those are going to pop up. But hopefully they can be handled without boycotts. Well, hopefully someone accomplished what they were trying to accomplish there. And, and yeah, like you say, we can move on and not ever have to deal with that again. I am pleased that the BCA has decided to step up and handle the escrow that the ABP wanted. I think that's a good role for the BCA to play. And anything that uh, helps get that organization involved once again in pro pool, I'm all for it. Absolutely. You hear from a number of players, well, what does the BCA do for Pro Pool? And, and I understand that this is not them putting money into the tournament, but they're at least getting involved. And to be honest, when the idea was put forth that someone escrow those funds, it really didn't make any sense for it to be anyone but the BCA. Right. And probably overreaching here, but, you know, the BCA, in order to save money has been retreating from the professional game for a number of years. First, they took away the travel stipend that was paid to players, and they took away the BCA Open. And it seems like the more they've retreated from the game, the more the game has fallen into disarray and and has lost popularity in this part of the world. And as it loses popularity, of course, the members of the BCA, the people who make pool tables and pool cues, their business is harmed. Maybe we can uh, turn that process around and get the game back in the, the forefront and sell more pool tables and pool cues. Well, hopefully that big picture is something that that the BCA and the industry in America will take notice of. You know, you and I have, have had many more conversations about pool than we just do on tape, and, and I know that you have felt strongly about that for some time, and Hopefully, you know, the industry will notice that. Yeah, it's hard for a sport to really flourish if it doesn't have a strong pro following. I don't know where golf would be without the PGA. Uh, certainly don't know where football and basketball would be without their respective organizations that have done so much to promote them. But because of all that promotion and because the pro game is nursed, those sports have taken off and become quite popular and people are making a lot of money at them. Well, enough of the negative, and you know, yeah. you, you and I can focus on negative all day long. We've got positive once a year. We get to celebrate the careers up to a point of the Hall of Fame inductees. This year, we've got two new inductees. I'll leave that to you. You can tell our listeners about them. Yeah, we've got two great ones. As greatest player, we have Ralph Suquet from Germany being inducted. And from the veteran player category, we've got the well-loved Danny DiLiberto coming <laughs> into the hall. And we are going to be talking to both of these gentlemen later today, so do stick around. You'll get comments from both Ralph and Danny about their induction. Uh, take them in order. Ralph Suquet, it's his third year eligible for the Hall of Fame. I understand the rules that we have in place as to who was elected into the Hall of Fame, but I was still kind of saddened two years ago when he didn't make it on the first ballot. I mean, you know, you in the world of baseball, you talk about first ballot Hall of Famers. And I mean, when you're up against Johnny Archer and Allison Fisher, who were both eligible for their first time two years ago, you know, you can understand why he wasn't elected. I was really surprised last year. Not so much surprised that Bustamante received more votes than Ralph, but I was surprised that they both weren't inducted. So this year, I was very pleased to see Ralph inducted. You know, they call Jose Perica the leader of the invasion, uh, leader of the invasion as far as the Filipino players coming into American pool. I guess you could kind of call Ralph the leader of the European invasion, couldn't you? I think so. I mean, obviously Oliver came over before he, but Ralph was the first guy who came and stayed. He's the guest who came to dinner and took a bedroom. <laughs> uh, 
And he's been over here for, I mean, I followed him from event to event throughout the Camel Tour. And I'm sure he's got to be the most traveled pool player of anybody in the world. He's constantly on an airplane. Yeah. Well, yeah, it seems like, you know, you, you see him at, at almost every tournament in the States, in Europe. I mean, he plays on the Euro Tour. He plays in world events. It's got to have a lot to do with the success, I mean, in addition to his natural ability. You know, I'm curious about something. I looked at the results voting-wise. Now, as members of the Billiard Media Association, both Jerry and I, as well as 40-some other members of the organization, were the ones who voted on the Hall of Famers. As members, we don't get to go back and see, oh, well, Jerry voted for so-and-so. We do get a chance to look at, you know, these were the total numbers and these were the number of votes for each player. Ralph was not an overwhelming winner this year. Karen Kaur was also eligible this year, and Karen received a significant number of votes, almost as many as Ralph. Does that make any sense to you, Jerry? I mean, why do you think the voters would be hesitant to elect Ralph, is it because he's European? Is Does it still go back to that, you know, Europeans don't play the game as well as Americans viewpoint, or what? No, because Karen's also European, and she was number two in the balloting. I mean, there were so many names on the ballot this year. It was one of the problems. That diluted the vote. What were there, seven or eight names? Seven. Yeah, and everybody on the ballot got a certain number of votes. There was nobody who got zero votes. So... I think that just the number of names kind of suited the field. However, I don't think there was anybody sitting around the table in Las Vegas when we had the meeting who didn't know in their hearts that it was going to be Ralph Souquet who made it through. Right. And to fill in the listeners, the players that were eligible this year were Ralph, Karen Kaur, Belinda Calhoun, Oliver Ortman, Kim Davenport, Mary Keniston, and Vivian Villarreal. And they all got votes. Yes, they did. And while we'll move on to uh, Danny DiLiberto, he was elected in the veterans category, and that was a simple yes or no vote. There were not other players up against Danny D. So, Which was a surprise to me, because at the meeting we did kick around a lot of other names, and I guess the veteran player committee decided not to put those, those other names on the ballot. The one that really surprised me was that Wade Crane didn't show up on the ballot. You're more familiar with the, you know, the players from years ago than I am, so I'm not as familiar with Wade's accomplishments. Yeah. Well, at one point in the early to mid-80s, he was quite a force. And I don't know that he would have gotten elected, but I thought he should have been on the ballot. But that's neither here nor there. Danny D was by far the most popular name thrown around. Uh, he's everybody's favorite, and he certainly deserved. Uh, I mean, Danny won the all-around in Johnston City, so he's been a great player for a long time. Well, and it certainly helps that he is every year in front of the pool playing public through what he does with Pat Fleming and AccuStats at the U.S. Open and. Derby City sometimes, you know, the fans don't forget Danny and what he's done because he's always out there. We're hearing his voice. We're talking about him. You know, he's been eligible for a number of years, and there was a push of varying degrees at different times to get Danny into the Hall of Fame. So, you know, it's nice to see that actually rewarded. Yeah, it is. Well, can we stop talking about these guys and start talking to them? (laughs) It's probably be more interesting. (laughs) Yeah. We've got right now, I know we've got Ralph Suquet on the line, so let's go to Ralph first. We've got Ralph Suquet on the line now, our new Hall of Fame member. Ralph, how are you? I'm doing fine. How are you guys? Can't complain too much. First, congratulations. This is quite an honor for you. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Yeah, when I got the news, I was overwhelmed. In fact, I'm still overwhelmed because, you know, this is obviously something that, you know, doesn't happen every day. And, you know, especially being from uh, the other side of the continent and being into the B- inducted into the BCA Hall of Fame is, you know, just a, a great achievement and a great honor. So I'm really, really happy and, and overwhelmed. No, no doubt about that. How did they break the news to you? How do you find out about being elected to the Hall of Fame? Mike Pinoza from Billiards 
Digest gave me a call uh -huh. while I was visiting my friend Jim White in Las Vegas, actually in Henderson. And, you know, he, well, actually, he, he called me and told me, can you call back? Because I wasn't available at the time when he called me the first time. So I, I called back like an hour later. And, but he wasn't prepared in that particular time. So he called me back like three, four hours later when, when he was ready to, you know, surprise me. And uh, so, you know, eventually he, he called me back and told me all of the good news. <laughs> well, that's great. You are, of course the first European pool player to be inducted into the BCA Hall of Fame. We had a European carom player, Raymond Kuhlemans, who was inducted. Kuhlemans, we had yep. a European cue maker who moved to the United States, Balabushka, inducted. But you're the first pool player. First male and, you know, that, pool really player. Is, that really is quite an accomplishment to be number one. I mean, it's not like Europe doesn't have other great pool players. They, it certainly does. But uh, everyone pretty much agreed that uh, you're the man that should have come in first, and we're just happy as we can be for you, Ralph. Well, uh, so am I. I mean, you know, there are definitely a few more probably joining me in the next uh, years as soon as they turn 40 and, you know, will be possible to, you know, be in the Hall of Fame. And, uh, yeah, I mean, as I said already, I'm, I'm really, really happy, and it's, you know, it's, always good to be the first one out of something, especially, you know, with you know, so many great pool players nowadays around in Europe. I mean, you know, when, when we look 10, 15 years back, there weren't that many really, really top European players. But over the last decades, I guess Europe, you know, caught up and maybe even, I wouldn't say we are leading, but, you know, we definitely eye to eye with, you know, a lot of uh, other top players around the world. You know, I mean, Asia especially Philippines, uh, it's probably not a little bit ahead of us still, but, uh, you know, we're catching up. And for me or for all the European players to show that, that it is possible to not only play well and, and do good, to show them that it is possible to make it into the Hall of Fame and the American Hall of Fame, you know, that's, that's a big sign for for all the ones that's, that are behind me and that probably have a good chance to be in the Hall of Fame very, very soon. Mike, can I have one more question before you get at him? Yeah, go for it. <laughs> uh, Ralph, you're 41 years old now. and Thanks, I'll yet, take that, but I'm, 40, I'm 42 and turning 43 soon. So. Oh, really? I thought you were 41. Okay, 42. And yet, even though we think of pool, by and large, as being a young man's game, your career has really gained momentum since... Well, like 2005, 2006, you've won more and more events almost every year, and you've got more top finishes almost every year. It seems to be, it, it looks on paper like your game is still improving. Do you like your game is still improving? Let's put it that way. There are always ups and downs, obviously. And, you know, in, in order for me to tell if my game is still improving or not, it's actually hard to say because I criticize my own game probably more than anybody else does. So I'm, I'm actually never really 100% happy with my game. So mm -hmm. from that point of view, I obviously can't tell if, if I'm still improving. But, you know, when I look back or when I sometimes see videos or DVDs, then I have to admit that I'm probably still getting better in certain areas. But maybe in other areas, I lose a little bit already. Not that I'm getting too old, but it seems like, you know, that the whole, your whole body keeps changing over and over. In certain areas, you improve. In others, you drop a little bit. So there's always, or there are always things that you have to work on in order to be in the same shape or even if you want to be better. It's not necessarily something that has to do with age or not, but obviously experience always helps. There's no doubt about that. But, you know, it's, you know I, I think pool players probably still learn until they're, you know, I don't know, at least 50. And, and even further on then, there's always something to learn. I mean, you, you never come to a point where you say, now I know everything. Now I'm 100% complete. Because whatever you learn one day, a couple of days later, you, you 
lose or you you forget something already because of age. So there's it's always an ongoing learning experience, and uh, therefore, yeah, I mean, you know, the fact that you're always learning, and then when you watch other players, when you play against other players and under different circumstances, there's always something to learn. And when you're really working hard on your game, then yes, then you should become better and better the longer you play. But we all know that at one point of your life, your game will automatically drop because the body is not able to perform as well as a 20-year-old. That's just a, a matter of nature. Mm-hmm. Mike? Ralph, first of all, congratulations. I think it's uh, you've only been eligible for two years, but I still think it's a long time coming. I was kind of surprised, even though two years ago was the time that Johnny and Allison were, were eligible, I still thought that you know you should have made it the first or second year you were eligible. Jerry and I were talking about it earlier, and everyone refers to Jose Perica as the leader of the Philippine invasion. Do you consider yourself the leader of the European invasion? <laughs> well, I don't know, to be honest. Obviously, uh, Oliver Ortman, the very first German, I'm not saying European, there were some Europeans coming over to the United States uh, even before Oliver and I that played there quite successful. One of them, unfortunately, died already. Another German player, Norbert Lang. I think he was the very first German that made it over there and kind of, you know, stepped into the American pool scene a long time ago. And uh, there is another Swedish player, Christa Löfstrand, who actually beat Norbert back then in the finals of the World Junior Championships. So there were some other players. So I don't know if, if I was the leader. Oliver was then the first one to actually win a big event when you won the U.S. Open straight pool. So, yeah, I don't know if, if I'm the leader or he was the leader or whatever. I'm probably the one that came over the most and frequently since entering the American pool scene in 1989. So maybe that makes me the leader, but, you know, I don't see myself being a leader. I'm just, you know, another pool player that enjoys playing, that enjoys the competition. And, uh, of course, you know, in order to play well and to, if you want to be the best, you have to compete with the best or against the best. So that's the reason why I came over and I'm still coming over to play all, you know, or try to play in all the events and as long as my schedule allows it. And um, So, yeah, well, I, I leave that up to other people to decide if I was or I am the leader of the European invasion. <laughs> all right. What do you think has contributed to the the recent, maybe last three to five years uh, surge of European talent. It just seems like they've taken their game to another level. What do you think has helped make that happen? Maybe, or I think it's the mentality. You know, teams like Europeans are very competitive. They like to play in tournaments where the Asians and the Americans are more of uh, again, they more have a gambling mentality. Um, they are not necessarily the best tournament players, even though, of course, they are, you know, they play well enough to, to win tournaments, no doubt about that. But when it comes to tournament play, uh, Europeans seem to have the better structure, seem to have worked on their game, on their tournament game, harder and more specific in order to, you know, become very successful in tournaments. Because when you gamble and play that whatever, eight, ten hours in a row against the same guy, you know, it's a different format and it's a different kind of workout that you do because you may lose two, three sets in a row and still eventually at the end end up the winner. But if you lose two, three sets in a tournament or normally two sets, then you're out, then, uh, you know, you can no longer win the event and you have to start all over, all over again. So it's, it's a totally different way of thinking pool or, or treating pool as a sport. And that's, I think, a reason why most European players are you know, better tournament players because they've just learned from the very beginning how to treat the game as a sport and how to work on their game in order to be successful in tournaments. Okay. I'm curious, and Jerry can correct me here if I'm wrong, it seems like when 
when Efren and Perica and the Philippine players, quote unquote, invaded the U.S. game, they kind of earned the respect of the, the other players fairly quickly. That doesn't seem to be the case with the Europeans. It, it seems like there's this, the Europeans are, were constantly having to, to struggle to prove themselves. Do you think for some reason that the, the European players had a harder time gaining the respect of the U.S. players and fans? Maybe, I don't know. As I said before, it, it probably has something to do with you know, the gambling mentality that the Europeans don't seem to have. And uh, with, of course, you know, the exception of a, of a few players that also gamble. But, you know, Filipinos are, you know, I mean, they play in the tournament and whenever they're done playing, they go to the pool hall and they start gambling or, you know, start playing for money, maybe all night long. So American pool players and fans, that's the way they see pool. They go to the pool halls and I mean, even when they go to the U.S. Open, you know, they, they watch maybe a round or two at the U.S. Open, then they go to the pool hall and watch there all night long and see what the action there is. So, of course, you know, if those Filipinos and other players go to the pool hall and gamble all night long, the fans watch them, bet on them, whatever. And sooner or later, everybody knows, okay, they played for money here, there and there, and you get a name. But in the tournament, if you don't really play well enough and you don't make it far enough into the tournament, nobody will recognize you. Even though, you know, you might be a great player and you might be a great money player. You know, that's the reason why, you know, it might be harder for Europeans to, you know, get the respect or the name on U.S. soil. But to be honest, it doesn't really matter. You know, I mean, when fans or people should see the results in tournaments and see what, you know, what, what people can do worldwide when they play against the best in tournaments under totally different conditions, which is, in my opinion, harder than becoming a great money player. If I can jump in. Ralph, if you were to put together your own highlight reel of your career, which wins would you include in that highlight reel? And which one of those was the one where you first said to yourself, if I can beat these guys, if I can win this event, then I can beat anybody and I can win anything. That's a good one. Um, I actually never really thought or felt that way. I always just tried to, you know, get my game better and better. And uh, and I I knew, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago, that when I work on my game and when I play my game, that it's really, really hard to beat me, no matter who I play and what game I play. Because pool is a game where you basically play against the table, against yourself, against the conditions, and you don't really play against an opponent, even though you do. And there are circumstances where, obviously, you can't do much because your opponent outplays you. But I would say 98 out of 100 times, you play against the equipment or you're actually fighting yourself because if your opponent doesn't run out the whole set so you won't be able to get to the table, then there's always a chance, you know, to get control of the table and then whatever you do at the table, I mean, you have the big or the biggest influence of what will happen in the next hour or two. So I, I never really, you know, felt that, okay, I won this event now and I've beaten all of them, so... No, I, you know, I can go on and win the next uh, 15 events without nobody having a chance. I was, you know, I just saw it as a as a game or as a sport that you really have to work hard on and that you have to improve in several areas in order to keep the mistakes as little as possible. And you know, if you almost play flawless, then uh, it's really really hard for anybody to to beat you in that game. Coming to the highlights, I mean, yeah. I've won almost everything. Obviously, when I first won the World Nineball Championships in 96, that was by far the, the biggest achievement. And uh, and I really, you know, that situation or that feeling or, or this event will always be in my mind, in my memories. I mean, that will never disappear. The same happened in 2008 when I won the World 
eight ball championships in Fujiwara, where you two guys were there on sides. And uh, that was a, a dream come true for me because I, I always liked to play eight ball. And whenever I played in the world championships, eight ball, for some reason, I, I just uh, never performed well enough and I never played my game. And uh, finally, you know, it's, it all came together and it, and it worked out. Maybe I'll, you know, I put myself under too much pressure in these particular events. And that's maybe why I choked and, and, you know, I just wanted maybe too much. And, uh, but eventually, you know, it, it all came together and, and it worked out. And of course, you know, what I probably will never forget is when I won the gold medal at the World Games in 2009 in Kaohsiung. Playing in, in such an event is just unbelievable. Not only when you play in the event, I mean, the, the uh, arena fitted maybe like, I don't know, six, seven, eight hundred people. I, I can't remember. Uh, it was you know, quite a nice setup arena. It might have been a thousand or maybe fifteen hundred people. Um, but playing against Yang, Yang Chin Chun there on his home soil and his home city, that was just the best ever. And after the the award ceremony was done in the pool arena. We went to the stadium and for the final or the closing ceremony of the World Games. And when you walk into the stadium with 40,000 people, you know, just clapping, and, and I mean, that's something I will never forget. It's just uh, the, the greatest feeling ever. Wow. Mike? Ralph, I know you had some problems with your shoulder earlier in the year. How's that coming along? Mm-hmm. It's actually doing doing good now. I had trouble with it for about four to five months. I still don't know where it, where it came from. I just, you know, started overnight and unfortunately it took longer than I was hoping in, in order to, you know, get it out of the system again. And uh, what I did wrong, maybe I just played too much pool or, or made a, you know, a funny move that I can't remember. I did whatever. And yeah, luckily uh, since, yeah, I would say Two and a half months, that problem is gone. And uh, I've talked to my physiotherapist, and you know he gave me a few more workouts to do, and then so to prevent, you know, those problems. But obviously, I'm, I'm not getting any younger, so uh, you know, it could always come back, or it could always, it could become worse when when I do maybe something wrong. I'm, I'm seems to be very sensitive. For example, air conditions, or if if there's too much air floating somehow and uh, if I'm sweating a little bit and then there's too much air going to my neck and to my shoulder, that, that seems to be affecting me. So I guess I, I, I don't know what to do to avoid it because, you know, when, when you play in events, you know, I can't play in, in heavy sweatshirts just to keep my shoulder warmer. Or, But, yeah, as I said, luckily, you know, since almost three months now, those problems are gone, and I hope they they will stay away for as long as possible. My last question: I know a lot of you know. Going back to the conversation about gambling, you know, I know a lot of the American players. That's what originally interested them about the game. What was it about pool that originally caught your attention? Well, I was. I mean, when I started, I was six years old, so obviously, I you know, I didn't really think too much about you know what could be in the future whatsoever. I just was very fascinated about those colored balls and uh, you know, I just wanted to see them disappear off the table. The fact that my father played one year before me and so I, he kind of you know, got me into it in our own pub you know, where we had a small table. So I, you know, I saw the table every day and uh, you know, at one point I just you know, wanted to get those balls off the table, and uh, I was so fascinated how, you know, how that worked and how other people could do it, so that, that I wanted to do the same and even, you know, become better at it. And, and yeah, after, you know, a few months, I already started winning against, you know, people that, you know, were in the pub, so... Yeah, I basically just grew into it. You know, there was nothing really that I saw in magazines or videos or or whatsoever. It just, you know, just happened. I just basically grew into it. 
And my last question is, Mike, just ask you about what started your career. At the end of your career, when you finally decide it's time to hang up the playing cue, have you considered Mm -hmm. what you're going to do with yourself? What will you do to uh, stay busy once the playing career is over? I don't really know at the moment. I'm going to be, or let's put it that way, next week I'll start a uh, program where I um, I want to be a, a trainer, a coach. I'm doing like, uh, I was supposed to do a nine-day course for that starting next week, but the fact that uh, I don't have the time to do nine days, I have to kind of do it in a, in a five-day period and, and do the, the final exam a little later because I have to go to Manila and play the Whirlpool Masters when mm-hmm. the actual tests will happen. Right. So I, you know, I could see myself being a coach, a trainer, whatever, in in pool, obviously. Maybe one day I'll, I could open a pool hall. I don't really know at the moment. You know, I'll I'll definitely have you know certain things in mind, and uh, but I can definitely see myself being in the pool world until I probably die. In which function I don't know yet. You know, I might you know become a whatever. Uh, a functionary sometime or maybe, you know, work for the association. But uh, I'd rather see myself as a coach or maybe even as an agent if the sport ever gets to the next level where, you know, maybe younger players need, need somebody to, you know, promote them or just bring them into the scene and try to get sponsorships for them or whatever. But uh, obviously for the next 10 to 15 years, I... You know, I still plan to be a professional pool player, and I, I want to be active at least another 10 years, hopefully another 15. Well, like you say, we've got plenty of time to worry about that. Again, from AZ Billiards, congratulations on the honor. Uh, we look forward to being ringside when you're inducted at the U.S. Open. And, Thank you uh, very much. Appreciate it. Good luck in Manila. Will we see you in the States uh, prior to the U.S. Open? Actually, no. As I said, I'm, we'll be busy next week, starting, first of all, with playing in the Euro Tour in Germany. Mm-hmm. That is followed by the yeah basic training camp or whatever, you know, in becoming a coach, uh, a legalized right. and recognized coach from the German authorities. And, uh, yeah, after that, I'm playing three weeks in Manila starting with the World Pool Masters, the World Cup of Pool, and then the Predator International Open. I'm not sure what is after that then, but I think there's another Euro Tour, or actually three tournaments coming up in Hungary. And and then we are almost, or then we are in October already, and then it's uh, almost U.S. Open time already. So my next trip to the U.S. will be for the U.S. Open. Well, safe travels. Looks like you've got quite a bit of that coming up. And yep, uh, we'll like look always. forward to see, we'll, yeah, as always. And we <laughs> will look forward to um, seeing you in Chesapeake, Virginia. All right. Thanks a lot, Mike. Thanks thank, a lot, Jerry. Thank and, you, Ralph, uh, very really, much. And I'm really looking forward to the induction ceremonies at the U.S. Open. I'm sure. We'll talk to you later, Ralph. Goodbye. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, it's always great talking to Ralph Suke. He seems to be a pretty happy man. But, you know, something just popped into my mind. We owe a Hall of Fame player an apology out of that interview. Uh-oh. Yeah, Ralph is not the first European pool player to be inducted. He's the first male European pool player to be inducted. He mentioned that. Who are we forgetting? Allison Fisher. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah, she's won a title or two here and there. Yeah, she's been around for a little while, hasn't she? <laughs> and she's in the Hall of Fame two years now. So, Allison, we love you. We're sorry. When we were doing our research, we were researching men. Please understand. That's scary. <laughs> but that's neither here nor there. And we've made the correction. So now we can move on and talk to Buffalo Danny. You know, before we get to Danny, real quick, okay. something that jumped out at me there towards the end of the conversation with Ralph. I mean, let's face it, you and I have complained more than our fair share of times 
on this show and much more so in our private conversations about the game of pool. You know, uh, the players seem to shoot themselves in the foot. The promoters, some of them have been less than upfront in their dealings with the players. There's been a number of of poor decisions, and I'm sure that you have probably felt this way many, many more times than I have, but, you know, there are times when at the end of the day you just say, I don't ever want to deal with this game again. (laughs) But yet, Ralph Suquet says, when I hang up the queue, I'll do something having to do with pool. The guy has caught pool fever hard. I mean, certainly he's with a Hall of Fame career, you can understand that. But I was just amazed that any idea that he has for what he wants to do after he stops playing pool still has to do with pool. That's a good thing, I think. It is, and it's good for pool that a man like Ralph wants to stick around. Yeah. Well... Maybe in 30 or 40 years, he can do commentary for Pat Fleming. There you go. Why don't we talk to the guy who does commentary for Pat Fleming now? That's a deal. Well, Mike, I believe it's Danny DiLiberto on line one, so let's get right over there. Danny, how are you today? I'm fine. Beautiful day in Buffalo, New York. Warm, sunny. Couldn't be better. Yeah, you get about three of those a year, don't you? Well, we've been having an unusually good summer this year. I mean, unbelievable. You know, hardly any rain and just beautiful temperatures, just like Florida. Cool. But we didn't call you to talk about the weather. We called to congratulate you on being elected to the Billiard Congress of America Hall of Fame. Way to go, man. Well, thank you very much. You know, it's a big honor. I didn't know I would be this moved, but I am. Yeah, how did you react when you first heard the news? Well, I'll tell you the truth. Mike Penosa called me at 2 in the afternoon and said, Danny, are you going to be busy from 4 to 5 later? I said, I don't think so. And he said, I'm calling you back. I had no idea what it was about. At first, I thought it was about, you know, Stefan Cohen, my pupil in straight pool, weighing 431 balls last week in Paris. So I Uh figured Mike wanted to talk about that. And then when he called me and told me what it was, it wasn't like he jumped right out and told me. You know, he had like a little preliminary stuff. And then he said, well, the reason I'm calling you is you got enough votes, you're being inducted into the BCA Hall of Fame. I got choked up. I couldn't talk for a little while. And that's rare. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know that anyway, but but anyway, it was a good honor because I really felt like I was going to have to die before I ever got in it. You know, I figured they're waiting for me to die. I think you and I talked about it a couple times, you know, and you, of course, were one of my supporters. You know, you really been saying it for years that I should be in, and I really appreciate that, Jerry. Hey, not a problem. I've always thought that you should be in, and sure enough, here you are. Let's talk about your history a little bit. You really made the national scene first, to my reckon, in pool, at least, when you won the Johnson City All-Around. It was really something because, you know, people are always asking me, their favorite question is, how did you learn how to play pool? And I always tell them, Going to Johnson City in the early 60s was like going to college. You know, all the top players in the world, I mean, in the country anyway, you know, the United States was really the world at that time. But all games, nine ball, one pocket, straight pool, the best players in the world. Plus the other things, you know, Johnson City is located like 300 miles south of Chicago, 110 miles east of St. Louis. And it's centrally located so that when players came to Johnson City, they came from all over the country, different routes. And on those different routes, they had what we call spots, players that liked to gamble. And we would trade them at Johnson City. Besides getting the knowledge of the games and all that, we had 
a whole notebook of spots to go to. And I like to clarify that, too. I don't want it to sound evil. When I first got into the game, I thought it was going to be a major thing and you could support a family. But you couldn't do that with tournaments. So we right. had to sneak around and gamble. Nothing immoral. You know, in my case, anyway, I never beat helpless people. And if ever I did, the wife would show up in the pool and yell at her husband about, where's the pay? You're supposed to come home with the pay. I would give the wife the money. And I would tell the guy, look, you play good, but don't be playing strangers. You don't play that well. And I would give the money back a number of times. So I felt a little guilty sometimes. But anyway, you know, over the years, the players, like Mike Siegel, Jim Rempe, they all complained about we don't make what the golfers make, what the tennis players make. But, Jimmy and Mike, you got to travel all over the world free. And in my case, I did that, and I met people that I never would have met if I weren't a pool player. I hung around with Fred Astaire. How strong is that? I mean, I lived with James Caan. Peter Falk was a friend. Dean Martin, I had a few drinks with a couple times. You know, I never would have met these people if I weren't a pool player. So, so I'm happy to be a pool player, and it kept me out of work 50 years. <laughs> and the reason I say that is when I was 19, I had a job, and I got a rash on my thigh. And I went to the doctors, and this is true. I went to the doctors, and he said, it's psychosomatic. You have to quit working. So I had to listen to the doctors. So I quit working at 19. <laughs> but it's hard work not working. <laughs> yeah. It certainly is. And, yeah, you know, back in the day, let's talk about Johnson City era, the game yeah. had a lot more characters in it. People no doubt about were, it. People were a bit crazy. I mean, you got Detroit Whitey and Fats and all those sorts of people. What do you think it was that drove the characters away from the game and introduced the more staid, calm player to the platform? I'll tell you exactly what it is. They go to a tournament nowadays, and they want to rest and try to win the tournament. We gambled. We gambled, made games. Not many of the top players do that. I'm not saying it's morally right, but that is the big difference. Plus, you notice they don't have any nicknames. You know, Johnson City days, everybody had a nickname. We had every animal possible. You know, we had squirrels, rabbits, <laughs> bears. We don't have that now. And, and the people that do have a, a nickname now, it isn't like they call them by the nickname. You know, I mean, like Johnny Archer is the scorpion. Rodney Morris is the rocket. I don't hear people say, hey, rocket, come over here. You know, but in the Johnson City days, we didn't even know any other names. In fact, one of our guys who passed away not a long time ago in an, a car accident, Billy Johnson. I knew him his whole career by Billy Johnson. It turned out when he started playing in tournaments, his real name was Wade Crane. His wife didn't even know his real name. Yeah. <laughs> it's true stuff. But anyway, you're right about that. Characters, and it wouldn't matter if they were going to play tomorrow in the finals of the tournament. If they got a game tonight, they play all night without sleeping. You know, I did that a couple times. Yeah. That's a bit rough. That's a bit rough. You know, you were a professional in four different sports. They all started with a B. That's a well-known trivia yep. question about you. Mm -hmm. Of the other three, which is bowling and baseball and boxing, which was your favorite? Well, that one's easy. Boxing, of course. And you know the big reason why I really love boxing? No. The other sports. Oh, well, I'm going to tell you. You're playing pool, you shoot, and you, you and the other guy shoots when you miss. When you're sitting there waiting to get a shot and the other guy's shooting, sometimes he's running out and there's nothing you could do about it. 
in boxing, you played while they played. You know, the other sports, it's, you know, the other, both teams play. That's a big point there. With, well, boxing, you know, I grew up around it anyway. You know, my brother was a boxer. Uh, in our neighborhood, all Italian neighborhood, the two heroes were Willie Pep, one of the greatest boxers ever in of course, Willie Moscone in pool. Those were the two sports that anyone even knew about, it seemed like. So anyway, boxing was pretty exciting. You know, that's the big thing, too. The excitement of every time you go into that ring, you could get killed or become a vegetable. You know, that puts a little adrenaline in your body. Yeah, it just might. <laughs> it does. It does. Well, I'll tell you what. Before a fight, is the worst thing. Sitting in the in the dressing room waiting to fight, it's horrible. Every time I said, what am I, nuts doing this? I'm going to quit after tonight. But as soon as the fight was over, I couldn't wait till the next fight. And in fact, I would sneak out of the arena, out of the dressing room, and I would go outside and growl <laughs> and psych myself up. I really did. I really did. It's a little crazy, but, you know, I'm considered a little crazy. A little? Right. A little? <laughs> well, I'm being, I'm being modest right now. Not a characteristic usually, but I'm being modest. In reality, talking about the colorful players and regular people are boring. you got to be a little crazy to have color. Yeah. That's all I believe. You know, take it for instance, Earl Strickland. He's crazier than me, but people love to watch him play, don't they? Uh, yeah, they do, and I think it's—I think you've hit on this because of his, his personality is such that you know you're going to see a show. Yeah, <laughs> or he might not even try, which he's done yeah. a couple times. Yeah, rarely yeah. he'll do that, but usually, you know, he's going to interact with the audience. He's not going to play like a robot. And, you know, you're going to know what's on Earl's mind the whole time he's out there. Yeah. Well, anyway, I want to say one more thing about Johnson City, because Eddie Taylor and Harold Worst on Tuesday nights in the show bar would do a duet soft shoe. And they were really good. I mean, I wish I had DVDs of that, but telephones didn't have cameras on them in those days. You know, but, but anyway... You're not going to see Johnny Archer and Nick Varner do a duet dance, are you? Not this week. <laughs> no. And I love them all. Don't get me wrong. I love them all. You know, you know great in your, players. In your, in your career, you moved around an awful lot. You've lived in, of course, Buffalo and Miami and Las Vegas, uh, L.A. You've, you've been all over the place. Did you ever get road, just let me get off the road? I love the road. I always did, and it hasn't left me yet. It hasn't left me yet. You know, you I, I drive. Oh, yeah, no doubt about it. But, you know, it took me 70 years. You know, I'm 76, so this means, like, sometime in the last five, six years, I realized why I love the road and traveling. It's okay. because everywhere I went, there was nobody I didn't like. You know what I mean? Familiarity yeah. breeds contempt. There's no doubt about it. So anyway, that was the real reason I like traveling. I'm meeting people with smiling faces. I got nothing against any of them. And it was a good feeling, you know, almost like skydiving. You know what I mean? You're free. It was a free feeling driving on the road. Well, who were your favorite road partners, and who were the players that you got closest to over your career? He wasn't a road player with me, but Ed Kelly and I really hung around. We were like brothers. We were inseparable. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you what, when I was in Vegas, you know, for that one packet tournament in May, Ed Kelly came up to me and he recalled something. You know, I was a poor sport when, in those days. When I lost the match, I went and hid because... If someone came up to me and said, nice match, I might get nasty. So I quickly got to my room or somewhere and hid. I mean, actually hid. So one night in, in Los Angeles, the straight pool tournament, I was playing that night, and Kelly wasn't. And Kelly said, Annie, 
I know a great spot, a lot of hot women. After your match, we're going to go to this spot. I said, okay, you got it. I was playing a guy named Wayne Northcross. Northcross was a pretty good player. Not a champion, but a pretty good player. And he loved straight ball. Well, anyway, he beat me. He beat me. So now Kelly said, come on, let's go to the place. I really didn't want to go because I was, like I said, when I lost, I was a poor sport. But Kelly talked me into it. We went in the place. Five minutes later, Kelly says, well, what do you think? I said, a lot of beautiful women here, but they all look like Wayne Norcross. (laughs) (laughs) He remembered that. But, But as far as your question, road players, partners, Billy Incardone and Larry Lascotti, easily, easily. Mm -hmm. You know why? We bet on everything, whatever it was, racetracks, sports, ourselves, and it was one big party. And you still get to partner up with Billy Incardone with microphones. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, Billy called me the other night and talked for an hour and a half and was ecstatic about my induction. And uh, we relived some things, you know, and I really, I guess it wouldn't matter if I told you some of the stories right now, because I'm going to probably use them in my speech at the induction ceremony. But anyway, Billy and I, we had like a love-hate relationship, you know. There were times when i do anything for him, and there's other times I wanted to beat him up, you know. Uh-huh. <laughs> And because people ask me all the time, what's your favorite Billy story? What's your favorite Larry Lascotti story? And, and I mean, a lot of people know the Larry Lascotti story by now because, you know, they ask me stories. Tell me something about Larry. You know, he's no longer with us. Great player, colorful human. And in, at the Stardust one year, I'm playing craps and I make the score. Larry Lascari goes broke. So in those days, they had the inside tower. You could stay there for like 76 a night. And then they had the outside rows of motel rooms, like, but you did have to go outside, and they were way cheaper. So now Larry and I, after the crap game, we had to walk by this jockey bar at the Stardust. We had a drink. And after we drank, we walked back to our rooms. It was March, and March in Vegas is freezing and windy, and we had to walk outside to our rooms. And while we were walking, we walked by the swimming pool. So I said, Larry, get on that board and jump into the pool, and I'll give you 200 So Larry did. He climbed the steps, got on the board, jumped in the pool. It was about 45 degrees out. And uh, when he came out of the pool, shivering and wet, I gave him the 200. I said, Larry, I made a score playing cracks. I was going to give you the 200 anyway. And he said, I was going to jump anyway. (laughs) That's kind of a well-known story. But, all right, go on. What what were you going to say? When you and I were finishing up the book, we went down to yeah. the Keys, and we stayed yes. with a fella who collected Spanish cannons off of old Spanish shipwrecks. Yeah, yeah. Do you have any contact with him? I think he was a student of yours. Yeah, he was, but, you know, he was a, a cue collector. Well, you saw his billiard room. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he, Steve Condella is his name. His wife is named Maddie. Very good mm-hmm. friends. I tried to stay in contact with him all I could. And like you know, we went there. We had a great dinner with him, right? Yes. Yeah, and he did collect cannons. I mean, you know how expensive cannons all over the house. You took a tour with him, I guess. Yeah. All kinds of cannons, little ones, big ones. But most of them had to have the, what do they call it, when like uh Oh, boy, when an important person, like a trademark, whatever you call yeah, it. A name, a name Something like, with yeah. arms, the arms thing. But anyway, he gets cannons 
his recent one was like $250,000 that he had flown there from Spain because he has dealers in Europe that when something comes up like that, they call him. Of course, you know, they got to make their little end too, but but he's got cannons all over the place. And uh, a rare, rare thing. And on July 4th, he blows one up that's outside. I mean, it really shocks the whole neighborhood with this cannon. And a good friend, a good friend, you know, and I brought many of these over the years that I've met. The reason I brought him up is because I saw you give him a brief straight pool lesson while we were there. And I did, yeah. You have just a tremendous amount of knowledge about straight pool, about where to go into the balls and which side of the ball to to hit to to bring the pack apart correctly and all that. Are you uh, actively still giving lessons to people? Sure I am. Well, you know that Stefan Cohen, who won the World Straight Pool Tournament two years ago, is my mm-hmm. pupil. In fact, right. in his victory speech, he just praised me. You know, I got tears because I was doing the commentary also. Yeah, I do teach straight pool. I do have a number of people in Chicago. But what, what I would do is whenever I got broke, which was like once a month, I would go on the road and teach. And my route would be Cincinnati first, driving, all this driving in my van. Cincinnati first, my good friend Sharm Adamson lives there. Then I would go to Indianapolis with Jeanette Lee. I'd stay with her a couple days, I mean, and her husband, of course. And I would cook, and we would hit balls. And I'm not supposed to tell you what I was teaching her because she didn't want to knock her action. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm not going to tell you that. I'm not, so after Indianapolis, and Don Wardell lives there too, a doctor, great guy. I would go and stay at his house too. He had a beautiful billiard room. And from there, I would go to Chicago. And I would make a couple thousand all through the name you've heard lately, Dennis Walsh. He was helping the pool players recently to get their dues with the right. uh, U.S. Open. Dennis Walsh, a lawyer, he organized lessons. It was like a doctor's kind of schedule. I mean, everybody showed up on time. They all had a camera that they filmed the whole lesson with. And I can go there any time and have all this again. But I'm really not crazy about Chicago. I think it's the worst place on earth to drive a car in. Horrible. And everywhere I had to give lessons was like 30, 40 miles away. I stayed in Schaumburg with my friend Mike Sletten. But everywhere I had to go, it was 30, 40 miles. And I'll tell you what happened one time. I'm on the uh, highway, and the highway's there, unlike what I was used to, when a toll comes up, I thought it was when you finally get off and it's your your last destination. Then you pay the toll. But in Chicago, you got to get off, pay the toll, and get back down. You're on it. And one time, I skipped it. I just kept going. A month later, I got a letter. This 80-cent toll, I had to come with $921. For going through without paying the toll. This is the truth, too. I mean, letters and letters. I mean, you know, I have to say, myself or any other pool player on earth would never have paid it. And I didn't either. But Freddie the Beard lives there. And he did that. And he had to pay it because he had nowhere else to go, you know. Wow. So, anyway. I hate driving in Chicago. I got a lot of good friends there, pupils, and Dennis Walsh. I don't want to go there anymore. If any of our listeners would like to really learn the finer points of straight pool or one pocket, Danny's in the one pocket Hall of Fame, by the way, drop me a line, jerry at azbilliards.com, and I'll put you in touch with Danny, and you can get some fantastic lessons. Mike, I've really monopolized (laughs) this conversation. Did Did you have anything you wanted to say or ask? You know, Danny, I'm curious, considering your history with straight pool and playing it at at a top level in your heyday, can you compare the way straight pool was played then to the way it's played now? Because I don't, 
it seems to me like it's not being played the same way. Well, you're right. You're right. Great observation. I call it nowadays nine-ball straight pool. You know, you got the nine-ball players that play straight pool. They make everything they shoot at. They go into clusters way too premature. You know, you got to pick around the balls. When the ball goes somewhere, fall on where it goes instead of just trying to hit that cluster because you're gambling. And you're not going to run a lot of balls consistently if you gamble that way. So the only real break shot you're gambling on is the original break shot when you run the rack, fall on the break shot. And even at that, there's ways to hit every break shot that will give you a better chance to have a shot. And, you know, I was lucky enough to play with people like Irving Crane. I mean, you know, no one knew straight pool better than he did. And he was such a great safe player that if I got in a safety duel with him, I invented something to shoot out of the pile because I wasn't going to beat him to the shot. No way on earth, you know. Are there players today who who do play the same straight pool of of yesterday, or is it pretty much just, you know, everyone shoots it at, at, you know, nine ball straight pool now? I mean, I imagine with what Stefan put together last week, he's got to be playing the right way in order to, to make a run of that size. Well, no doubt about it. Like I said, the less gambling you do, you fall on balls that go and it opens up a pocket for another ball and you gain great cue ball control. And Stefan has done that. Mixed with his talent and his heart, great player, great player. But back to the question, I don't want to knock any of the players of today because they're all my friends. People like Ralph Suquet, for instance, that I'm very honored to be inducted with him. He has the best fundamentals in the world. People want to see fundamentals to perfection, watch Ralph Suquet. You want to watch nine ball played perfectly? Watch Buddy Hall, which I guess he's retiring, so the only way we'll see him now is on his DVDs. But great nine-ball player. And like people like Johnny Archer, they're getting way better at the game now than they were when they started just shooting balls in. And another big thing is the players of today don't know the safeties as well as the past players. You know. But anyway, you're right. It is a different style of play. But the only thing is, the players of today don't miss, you know. So, and sometimes when I'm doing commentary, I'll say, he shot the wrong shot perfectly. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm afraid we've used up our time. We want to congratulate you one more time, Danny. It's a, a great honor. You certainly deserve it. If anybody would like to see Danny inducted into the Hall of Fame, it will be done at the U.S. Open this October, so come on up, catch some pool, and watch our man DiLiberto get his uh, green jacket. Hey, wait, one, one other thing, Jerry. One yeah. other thing. When we went to the Keys, you learned a lot of pool for me. Yeah. I remember you taking notes and all that, so you yeah. were a lot smarter after that. Well, it proved Okay, yeah. I won't interrupt you. <laughs> at any rate. You guys come see us at the U.S. Open. Watch Danny get inducted. Danny, congratulations again, buddy. I'll look forward to seeing you in Chesapeake. And that's it for now. Danny, thank you for your time. We'll talk to you soon. Okay, thank you, Jerry. Bye. I'll see you. I'll see you over there. Bye. Well, Danny seems pretty happy about his induction. We've talked about it many times over the last few years, and he always felt they weren't going to induct him until he was dead. So I'm glad uh, that it happened while uh, he's around to enjoy it. And he sure does sound like he's enjoying it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's enjoying it a great deal. And uh, really looking forward to that induction ceremony. That should be a classic. I hope that, uh, <laughs> hope we get this one on tape. <laughs> yeah, that would be a shame. You know, it, it's a shame when you think about the players and the stories. I mean, I know that uh, Diana Hoppy has tried to put something together where you know, some of the stories that the old-time players have can be saved on DVD or something, but... I mean, I can't even imagine what it was like getting together with Danny and writing that book. You guys must have been just laughing every day. 
it was right much fun. Of course, the real bones of it wasn't all that much fun because what we did was I sent Danny a tape recorder and a whole box of tapes, and he filled these tapes up with stories. But what he didn't do was put them in chronological order. He'd tell a story from 1959 and then a story from 1999. And, and so I had to try and cipher through all of this and put it in the correct order. It was a bit of work, but the time that we spent together, I'm like, well, you can't have a bad time with Danny DiLiberto. He's just a fun guy. That's all there is to it. And uh, I really enjoyed listening to his AccuStats commentary. I think he's one of the best that's, that's ever been. He's not at all afraid of imparting his knowledge on the commentary. Anything else? Because that's how I was going to wrap us up. No, I think we're good. Hey, folks, that's been Run Out Radio for today. Please remember our sponsors, Lucasi Hybrid Q, Simona's Cloth, and the TAP League System. And we'll look forward to talking to you again real soon. And uh, we hope to see you both at Turning Stone in Verona, New York, and, of course, at the U.S. Open in Chesapeake, Virginia. You guys be safe. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.